Psalm 44. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days and days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm in the light of your countenance, because you favored them. We have heard with our ears, O God, going back to verse 1, our fathers have told us, the ancient of days, what the ancient of days did in days of old. This generation is speaking, and some of your headings there for the Psalms, if you have them, you may see a contemplation of the sons of Korah. So they're speaking on behalf of Israel as representatives in this particular generation. Lord, we know what you've done before. And it's a reminder that he's the one who cast out the enemies from our lives. God brought his affliction upon those who afflicted his people and cast them out. And clearly, they are told and they recognize, they're taught that they did not get the possession of their land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. It was God only. It's a reminder The mercy of God and the favor of God is the only reason we have any success whatsoever. So lesson we know when we're taught it and we agree to it mentally, but to have that experience to trust God that this is God's hand upon my life. There's no other way. As I mentioned this morning, we'll go through experiences and we'll come to a point where it becomes that crucible. It becomes that crucible. What is a crucible? It's the melting pot. It becomes a crucible of crucifixion where we really come to the end of ourselves completely, not just say it or preach it or agree with it and jump on the bandwagon with it and everybody else says it, but we actually have gone through it. And we have wholehearted dependency upon God. And you know how it reflects? Faith is evidenced also by our praise. Genuine, sincere praise that goes from the heart, 100% to God. A total surrender and trust in God. Because you favored them, that's why our ancestors got the possession of their land. Clearly, it was not by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. It was not their military might, not their physical strength, nothing, but the right hand of God. The reason we have what we have, all of us, is because of the power of God. He's sustaining us. 
Verse 4, you are my king. Oh God, you know, people used to gather in families that are told to rehearse this in the ears of the children and generations. What do they do? They would gather around the table and talk about how God delivered their ancestors from Egypt. It was not just on Passover, but throughout the year. That was the main event that stands out in Israel's history. The major event, the Exodus, was the type of victories to come. It was a reference point. And the Lord says, you have to do the remembering and the rehearsing and the proclamation of it to your children in your houses. From the family, in public festive occasions, they would gather together. There will be some people chosen, not just the teaching priests, but heads of the families, as they were clans and tribes. They would have the privilege and the responsibility to do what? Recount what great things God has done. To keep on mentioning God's name. You think they would have gotten tired? Only the sons of Belial, meaning the sons of the devil. People who despised God and said, why should we hear about God again and tell me something new? They actually had that dependence upon themselves that we did what we did. We're just stuck in a, a ritual and a religion. We have to go through this and hear all this again. No relationship with God. Blinded. And until they get into some very, very difficult situation, their pride won't be broken. But the people who are in charge and they know God and they are the elders they're supposed to be transmitting the faith and praising God in the present. They would gather together and this is what they talked about. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Spirit, a fear is an enemy. It's a literal spirit or spirits that will creep up on someone to choke them into paralysis where they cannot trust God anymore. They can't take another step. It can affect the whole life. It's an enemy. Through God, through you, we will push down our enemies Whatever affliction comes, we are supposed to hold on to God and proclaim the victory. And that's what we do by God's grace. And we're being taught that again and again in this church. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. Every demon spirit is under the feet of Jesus. Now, this is the present taking from the past, they recounted, our fathers did not get what they got by their own strength. It was God's favor. Lord, we're calling that same truth in your presence into our present. And the key is, I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you 
has saved us from our enemies. Praise God. To sing the praise of God. And have put to shame those who hated us. In the lifespan that we have gone through, each of us, different lifespans so far. Many of us have had the experience where we have seen God intervene and put our enemies to shame. No one else did it but God. And when God acts every time on behalf of his people, their faith grows stronger and the confidence in him greater. And that gives them power for the present and power for the future. Hallelujah. He put to shame those who hated us. And goes into praise again. In God we boast all day long. And praise your name forever, Selah. God never, ever, not only not forsakes his own, but he always comes through triumphantly and causes them to be lifted up out of their affliction. And at the same time, you anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Enemies are put to shame. Hallelujah. God makes sure that he does a thorough work. As human beings, even as Christians, we can settle for less than the perfect will of God. But if we know God from reading Psalms like these, we know that when God acts, he does a thorough work. It's a 360 victory. And we should also be zealous to say, yes, Lord, we want a complete victory including the enemies of God, who are our enemies, to be put to shame. See, that's always part of God's program. Always. Never can you find, beginning in Genesis, all the way through the 6,000 or so years of human history, to the end of Revelation, we, we get to understand that God does put his enemies to shame even as he lifts his children out of the affliction. So that's very instructive for us. That we see that God acts on this way. He never changes from that. His method of operation never changes. He always lifts his children who cry unto him and are faithful to him out of affliction. But he also makes sure that the enemies who do not want him to reign over them as king and afflict his people, they are openly and publicly put to shame, just like when Jesus rose from the dead. It's important for us to know our Father. It's important for us to know how He operates. It's important for us to know what He thinks about everything. Because only when we see our Father in His Word more and more, we get to understand that certain things that we thought were good are actually not in God's will. Namely, Oh, God, please, please, please. Didn't you say, Lord, on the cross, Father, forgive them? Didn't Stephen, when he's being martyred, say, Lord, don't hold this against them. Don't lay this murder to their charge. But you see the Lord come and break out against his enemies. You see, because the forgiveness is offered, but God only knows, God already knows and only knows the end from the beginning. So there's a payday for the wicked. 
and it's equal opportunity. Every enemy of God is eligible, and they'll be called to account. That also puts fear in the hearts of the people of God who may dare to be hypocrites in Zion, as it says in Isaiah. Is it a possibility to be hypocritical? Every day we can be hypocrite. In many things, but we're commanded not to be so. But you know what? If somebody's considering backsliding, when they see how God deals with the enemies, they're so thankful. Thank God I didn't cross over the line. You know what happens? They come running back under his wings and say, Lord, please forgive me. There's such an effect from the word of God. So many different things happen. That's why the word of God is flawless. It's able to purify us and able to instruct us, give us a clear, bright light on the path of God. But what happened now in verse 9? But you have cast us off and put us to shame. Wait, the enemy was the one who's supposed to be put to shame. They're saying, Lord, you put us to shame and you do not go with our armies. Well, we know all about this. God never, ever, not only does he not abandon his children, never, ever. But he will always crown them with victory, bring them through every tribulation with triumph, not barely making it out. There'll be a crown. Hallelujah. But what happened here? You put us to shame. You do not go with our armies. Have you heard believers cry, Oh God, why are you doing this? Why? One after another. God, where are you? Why? Have we ever said that to God? You make us turn back from the enemy. Why? Why? Why am I being overpowered by my enemy? Why? As I speak often about the premise that must be laid out, which has helped me from my youth, when the devil tried to attack me with thoughts of suspicion against God. He tried that. There was a wrestling within me. And from that time, I understood. And I said, never again will I question the character of my God. He's never not only not hurt me, he's always had mercy on me and shown me love. So it's established. This foundation, this precept, this premise. God cannot do wrong. That's the truth. Not a philosophical abstract concept or something to just hang on to like a peg. Is all I got. If I don't think this way, I'm going to explode. It's not psyching ourselves. It's the truth. It's the absolute truth. That's how he is. That's who he is. God is all-powerful, all-wise, and all-loving. He loves me. That's established. But also, that he will not only never abandon his own, it will always cause me to come out with spoil. What a powerful, wonderful thing to incorporate and make it ours, not just for a certain sermon season, but this is now another building block of my faith. The first thing is established, God willing, with everyone. 
God is not only never to blame, He's the best, He's perfect. And He loves me. Something goes wrong in my life. The first thing is, God, you're not going with our armies. You put me to shame. What did I do now? And there will be times God will say, you know very well what you did. Now you have to repent. Or, Lord, I've been following you, Lord. This is the best season of my life. Oh, how I love you. Now what? In that case, it's just a matter of time. And the time that it takes for a righteous person to go through a trial and to come out of it is the time that will elapse to the accumulation of the spoil for God's glory and for our good. That's the truth we learn in Scripture. But here, you see this kind of confusion and it becomes accusatory. They're voicing their deepest feelings. Something's not right. They started out saying, God, this is your grace upon our fathers. And Lord, we're going to trust you and boast in you too. But currently we're in deep trouble, Lord. What's going on? You've cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy. And those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. They robbed us. You're watching this, God? You have given us up like sheep intended for intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing. What an indictment against God. Surely this is the voice of a person, at least in these verses, with this sentiment, who doesn't have the whole story. God did sell his people. He let Nebuchadnezzar come to take them all away. Few were left behind, relatively speaking. But all of them were under his power. What happened? Furthermore, the temple was destroyed. They were taken as slaves. You're talking about a nation. So, it did happen that writing these psalms, there are different time periods in which the psalms are written. It was not just David, others have written also. But certainly, they would have experienced this and recounted what happened in the book of Judges. Constant oppression. There was a time of Gideon and Samson, the Philistines, the Midianites, and all these people coming and oppressing God's people. What's going on? And they're so frustrated. They're saying, you sell your people next to nothing, Lord. Do we matter anymore to you, God? Everything has gone haywire. And we're so cheap in our value that you don't profit by selling us. These are some very, very, not only striking words, they're full of passion in the sense of despair an accusation. Strange, but not so strange. This is the instant reaction of anyone who's backslidden or backsliding. First person to find fault, God. 
But when a person comes to the right mind, the first person they will praise is God and thank Him for His absolute mercy on them, for even giving them the mind to think and thank Him. Because that's how far they were when He rescued them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors. You, have you ever had trouble with your neighbors? Regular neighbors, physical neighbors, that is in your physical locale. Most, if not all of us, have had some kind of trouble sometime in some neighborhood where we lived. And it could have been that we didn't have any fault in the matter. How does it feel to come down your block and into your own home and be harassed by neighbors? Israel is facing this continually. A scorn and a derision to those all around us. They're just despised. You go out to work, despised by the neighbors. Come in from work, despised by the neighbors. Go out to shop, despised. How does it feel 24-7 to have neighbors despising you? You want to get out of there. Except these people were sold. They were actually, there was no escape. You see, God in his mercy had to corner them because that's the only way they would repent. That's the only way he can get their attention. On the one hand, they invited evil spirits to come. On the other hand, God himself did it too. He allowed that to happen. But because he's such a loving God, Every move he makes, he he tries and tries with all the grace he can show to the very end. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. It's really a terrible thing. If we go through that, everywhere you turn, they despise you. People have felt that. Groups have felt that. It's not a good feeling. My dishonor is continually before me. Now, as I read this psalm, I can be absolutely disconnected and say, this is not my experience. So, I will either tune it out physically, or while I'm listening, I can tune it out because I don't understand that these words were written for me, each of us. The Word of God is still profitable. It's God-breathed, and it will bring reproof, correction, train me in the way of righteousness. As I said before, so many things happen when we hear every bit of the Word of God, the whole counsel of God. All the places that are unsettled in our hearts, where we are half-baked, perhaps, it begins to actually fill out and take shape. I need every bit of God's Word. Everything that's written in God's book is for me, as I'm able to handle and digest it, every part of it. It's when we take partial Bible, we become partial Christians, and by default, wholehearted traitors. It's inevitable. Because the whole counsel of God can make me a whole Christian. Nothing less than that. So it's something new 
for a lot of people that when we read it, we don't just look contextually, historically, and we say, well, this is what they went through, and wow, and you know, I can write a book report on that. That's not God's intention. That has to translate into, have I gone through this in my thoughts, in my physical experience, and what is God speaking to me through this today? Because there's something he wants me to gain today, even if I've read this before. The fear of God start coming upon us in a wonderful way. Because we're getting into this the way the Spirit wants us to. My dishonor is continually before me and the shame of my face has covered me. Can you see that picture? If you have a person covering their face because not because it's a cultural thing or a religious thing, but they're ashamed. They're ashamed. The mask is not for hygienic reasons or because there's an epidemic or pandemic. It's because I'm utterly ashamed. That's a, a basing of human dignity. How can a person get to that level of shame where they want to run and hide? It only happens when one runs from the Creator. Now, as a child grows up and they, there are those who are oppressed, it's gotten into their mentality, their, their, their whole personality. That's an oppression. They're also running from God because they don't know Him. But there are a group of people who run from God. They, they full well know what He requires, but they turn their back on Him. Both will get shame, but the first one, will be rescued. And the second one, only if repentance is there. Shame. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles. Because of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us. But we have not forgotten you. Now the truth comes out. Partially. It's confusing, isn't it? Sometimes when we read, we need the whole context. We need God to help us because there will be the devil who will bring on people. And I've heard this from people, even popular teachers. You you really get the sense that they are doubting God in their commentary, in their preaching. And actually implying that God made a mistake. You know how? Two ways. One is directly insinuating, directly accusing, saying that God you're too confusing and we don't know what you're up to. Sometimes God leaves us in the dark and it's a painful thing and, uh, well, that's life. So deal with it. Hopefully he'll help you later. I've actually heard elaborate commentaries with cartoons and depictions of Bible summaries saying these things that are absolutely not only unwarranted but evil. Second way is by finding fault with the people God set her upright in the Bible. Work that into there. Joseph was proud and this was that and find fault. Even to Job saying that the reason he got into trouble was he feared because it says he got up early in the morning 
And he always sacrificed to God. That's the way they approached God to worship. To cover his sons and daughters in case they sinned against God, probably when they were too merry. He just wanted to cover them. He feared. And because he said, the thing that I feared came upon me, they make it into a doctrine. And they say, see, the hedge was broken because the man started fearing. You read the book of Job, there's no such thing there. Doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But these are the type of things. So what happens? In effect, the God whom Job worshipped was easily persuaded to make Job go through all of that because he feared. Is that what God does? When we fear, he'll come and he will tell us that's not the way. He may rebuke us, but he doesn't bring disaster because of that. It's as if Job spent a lifetime of being a coward and cowering before the devil and he was a nervous wreck getting up every morning and sacrificing to protect his children. Is that the picture of Job? Is that why God said he's perfect and upright? There's no one like him? How evil and how we can trace when statements come directly against God or against his people who are walking with him. That's from the sly devil. That's a case in point of how people can misunderstand and confuse and come out with something that actually ends up assassinating or trying to assassinate God's character. Here's one psalm that people may go into that and they may read or hear sermons and they're taught in the theological seminaries. I've seen that. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. Wait a minute. Then what is this back and forth? Lord, our fathers escaped. They were blessed. It was your power that saved them. Now you're our God and you're doing the same thing for us. We don't trust in ourselves. We're both in you. But God, we're being beaten up over here. Everything's happened to you in spite of the fact that we didn't forget you and we didn't deal falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from you. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God stretch us out? For he knows the secrets of our of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Often you'll see in the New Testament a verse taken from a chapter in a context, a situation, such as this one in verse 22, taken right into the book of Romans, chapter 8. But can I actually go back and say that God has forgotten me and shame has covered me. And we're reproached to our neighbors. God has sold us for next to nothing. He has given us a sheep for food to our enemies. 
Our enemies take spoil from. I'm going back up now. It says, you have cast us off and put us to shame. Many of these writings in the Bible, such as in Ecclesiastes and some in Psalms, have that tone of God not being so straight with us. God not being so fair in the confusion. But we have revelation far more than they did. So I must read this and I must be drawn into this. I must identify with it. But I must not stop with this because I have far more revelation. God doesn't sell his people. Someone can say, well, maybe they felt like that. But they're talking about a literal captivity and spoil that's happening to them. There are seasons in which Israel obeyed God. Very few compared to the total relationship. A few times. When did God ever severely break someone in the place of jackals and cover them with a shadow of death? Made the enemy to spoil them and sell his people for next to nothing. When we go through trials and hardship, the temptation will come to feel abandoned, depending upon the severity of the trial and our own level of faith and experience and character. We're still fragile. We're not perfected. The way we will be when we enter heaven. We'll all break. Every one of us will break under a certain amount of pressure. Completely. But God has promised never to leave us, so we don't have to break. And we look to him. And we identify with what he suffered. And when we're walking with him, we have a cross to bear. If we can clearly say, this is not due to my disobedience or rebellion. Clearly. From our consciences. Then we know. Even though it may feel like what these statements refer to. God hasn't sold me. I don't have a right to voice everything in the Bible that people have voiced, even though it is the Word of God. Because, excuse me, because there are times when they have voiced things under severe frustration without the revelation that we have today. And yet, we don't say, I'm not looking at the psalm because of that. Still a lot to learn. As I said, the more we're in the word, the spirit of God will apply exactly what these speaks apply. Who would have thought that Romans 8, hundreds of years later, would have found verse 22 from this psalm in the writings of Paul by the Holy Spirit to talk about those who are righteous and being oppressed We're actually following the path of the cross. Israel is not a picture of the church and the victory we have completely. But we take the things that God wants us to take with his help and apply it to our lives. God will never sell his people when they're walking with him. Never. 
He will never allow the enemy to spoil us. Never. He will never cause us to suffer dishonor and shame when we're walking with him. The enemy can come and do those things. But it won't stick to me. And I won't charge God with having sold me to the enemy. So there's a manner in which we identify and then there are certain statements and certain sentiments that I know in the light of my experience with Jesus Christ and the revelation that we have now that they didn't have then. We can say with Paul, as we heard in the morning, I glory in my tribulations because I can see the full picture about God's victory. I may not know the details leading up to that, but I can see it by faith. That every time when we spoke about the vessels of honor and dishonor this morning, how it takes gold to go through God's fire to become refined gold. You can't put plastic in there. You can't put wood in there. You can't put hay. The only way somebody can be qualified to be refined by God to become pure gold and usable is if they're gold to begin with. And for that, they have to let go of those things that are youthful desires and evil, become honorable. So there's a a tremendous full picture that we get as believers with the word of God. And yet I have to read this psalm. I'm commanded by God to take the whole counsel of God. And God has promised to continue to reveal to us every part of his grand plan. Glory be to God. I'm going to pray that we do have victory. And at the end of Romans, let's just turn there briefly because this is referenced there. And speaking a lot about the New Testament revelation, how this all plays out. There is therefore now no condemnation. Romans 8, to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're going to get to the exact verse at the end, but let's read the context in this chapter, how the spirit of God brings it up. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We've spoken a lot about this before. Many of the, most of the Bibles don't have, who do not walk after the flesh, but the very fact that you have the word in Christ Jesus says it all. That means they're walking the spirit. You can't be in Christ Jesus and not walk in the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God, by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verses 3 and 4 directly contradict popular teaching, 
that Jesus obeyed for us, based upon his obedience, we get grace. And we don't have to obey. Many people will say, no, no, I don't subscribe to that at all. Of course we have to obey. But when you really put them to the question, uh, if you don't obey, will you still make it to heaven? Of course. How come? By his grace. Well, if he expected you to obey, you know you have to obey. How come you get to go to heaven if you don't obey? It says right here, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh because he was the son of God, holy, and he defeated the enemy. We, or Paul is talking about those who succumb to the flesh, they can't look to the law to save them. But notice when he condemns sin in the flesh, we fulfill the righteous requirement by doing something specific. And even though the NIV, the NLT, and many, many Bibles don't have that first part in verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It stops right there. And they go to the next verse. So right away, I'm not condemned. I'm not condemned. I'm saved. I'm born again. Nothing's going to happen to me. I can do anything I want. Even though a lot of the Bibles don't have that second part, who do not walk out according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, they will have it here in verse 4, which is the same thing. Because he condemns in the flesh, I have to do my part to fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law. How? By not walking according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Look at that solemn responsibility we have. I have to, I must walk in the spirit. If I walk after the flesh, we're going to read that, we'll die. Spiritually we'll die. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, their minds are on the things of the spirit, you know? You can wake them up in the middle of the night. And they'll be wrapped up with God's things. Because that's what they do when they're awake. We have the ability to train our minds with the help of the Holy Spirit and by cleansing it with the Word of God, continually reading, meditating, memorizing, and being in God's presence. Where our minds are now heavenward, not only do we not have time for carnality and works of the flesh, we're hostile against it. We hate it. So it has no room in our lives. And constantly, we're risen with Christ. Our mind is on Christ. Lord, how can I glorify your name? How can I build your kingdom? That's the person who's walking in the Spirit every day. For to be carnally minded or to be fleshly minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. There's no hope for the flesh. It has to be crucified. You know what that means? We immediately tend to think because of the way we think. Flesh is body. You touch your skin, your muscles. That's flesh. And a picture of crucifixion, which literally happened physically to Jesus Christ, when we're taught about that, that we need to also crucify the flesh, our minds may gravitate toward that physical 
image or the image of the physical. But it's to help us to understand that that hostility of having an instrument to kill and crucify is the kind of militancy God requires. Very clear in scripture. In the New Testament of love and grace. Very clear. Brutally deal with the works of the flesh. That's how you come against the flesh. Again, it's not an abstract abstract concept where you just have to image, imagine some things and, you know, try to do it, wrestle with a, some prayers and, and, and sweat it out. And wow, I, I fought against the flesh today. No. It's watching out for the works of the flesh and that's how you crucify the flesh. So then those who are in the flesh, not in the body, it's not talking about in the body, there are places in the Bible where Paul will say that I no longer know anyone after the flesh. He's talking about, I don't look at them as a human being only, but I see the spiritual reality behind them. We don't even know Christ after the flesh. Because even though he was incarnated, became man, Paul says the way we look at him is that he's up on high. He's the most high. So my whole way of thinking is, he's above every principality and power, and I'm seated together with him. He's gone through it already. Once to die, never again. Because he conquered everything. This flesh, so then we, or those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He's talking about that evil nature, the old nature. If we sow to jealousy and bitterness and anger and vengeance and backbiting and gossip and tail-bearing, all this stuff, we're going to reap death. That's how dangerous it is. And that's why God says, it's either or. You can't have both. Either put the flesh to death or you'll become dead to the spirit. You can't put the spirit to death. You can't put God to death. But we'll become dead to God. But the good news is you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed in real action, reality, the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. He's not his. This is akin to what we read in Galatians. So then, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. So you can be in the Spirit, but begin to walk contrary to the Spirit, in which case you are Yielding to the flesh, the old nature, aka Satan's instrument, and we will actually not only not walk in the spirit anymore, because we are grabbing things that we shouldn't in our personality and emotions and the way we conduct ourselves and think, but we'll actually stop living in the spirit also. It's what happens when we look at the total scripture. Everything plays out. And we understand better. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Not the physical body, but this body of sin. That's what it says in Romans chapter 7. This body of sin. If Christ is in me, there's no competition there. The devil's out. 
the Bible continually says, do not invite the devil back in. Because if you do, it's not that Satan can drive God out. God himself will leave. Why? Because you as a human being decided that you want the devil's things. God will say, you don't want me. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. That old nature is put to death. It doesn't mean we're dead because we have the Spirit of God. And just like we read a few verses before, His righteousness is being fulfilled in us. Is it automatic? No. The spring and the source and the origin is flowing. It's there. But it's up to me to keep it pure or polluted. To let it progress into the sanctification so I become a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through a spirit who dwells in you. So there's a play here on that term flesh and body. And only if we read carefully will we know exactly what he's referring to in what way. Now it clearly says mortal bodies. God will not give life to the carnal nature of that flesh. Never. That's crucified. That part will separate us from, from us, separate from us. You see a space shuttle, spacecraft going up. There's a part that separates. We've seen that. There's a part that falls off. As we meet Jesus, that part will fall off permanently. It's not active now. It's not meant to be active now. It's dead. We have to keep it crucified. Anything to do with the list that we see in Galatians and Romans 1 and all of the place, Ephesians, Corinthians. We can know exactly when the flesh is acting up. We'll let it live. We don't let it breathe. We don't let those characteristics come. Then we have it crucified. We have it crucified. And we're walking in the spirit. Now he's talking about the physical bodies. That though the physical body may be the vehicle that the flesh, the carnal nature can work through, how? Through physical sensations, to be immoral, physical sensations, to be lazy. We can let the body dictate the decisions, in which case we'll become a slave to the flesh nature, which goes through the flesh of our bodies to try to control us. The carnal part, which is called the flesh, that socks in the Greek, socks, S-A-R-X, will fall off when we meet Jesus. But we don't cry and say, oh, poor me, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm going to sin till the day I die because God said that I have the flesh with me and I'm struggling. It's a gross misapplication of that whole doctrine. And people are in bondage with that. No, we have no domination of that whatsoever. It's crucified. But it hangs around. Not alive, it's hanging around. In other words, it's as good as, as if it weren't with us. Because we, we're not giving any power to it. But it, when we ascend to be with God, when that translation happens, when we get the new body, that, that flesh, the carnal nature, and the old body flesh, both will be gone. Never again will I have the old nature attached to me. Not even dormant. 
but I will have a new body, supernatural body, which will last forever. It's amazing how God shows these different things and parts of his plan that we get an understanding. So this is why I feel this way. This is why I'm feeling the drawing pulling me back to Sodom and Gomorrah my whole life. Why? You know why? Two reasons. One is not from the devil to see if he can get in. He can give certain sensations. But we shout at him in the name of Jesus, get out of here. In Jesus' name. I'm a slave of God. He flees. He can try that for a while. But the other thing is the one that's dangerous, where he sees an open door and he's able to come in. We start giving him. We need the fear of God upon us so that we can be overcomers. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is our great privilege and commandment from God that we can do this. We can actually live free from the old nature and put that old nature to death by living in the Spirit. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This verse, when I began to understand it, began to really jolt me. When I began to understand it at a certain point in my Christian life. Because it begs the question, am I led by the Spirit of God? Because saying clearly, only if I'm led by the Spirit of God am I child of God. So how crucial it is that this becomes the priority in my life. I've got to make every decision by looking to God and waiting on Him. That shows that I'm really a child of God because why? Jesus said, my sheep know me. That is, I know my sheep and my I'm known of my sheep. I know my sheep and I'm known by my sheep too. They follow me. They hear my voice. They know my voice and they follow me. For many people, this is a high standard of Christianity. They say, wow, be spirit-filled. That's really up there. I, I can never be that, brother. I have too much of the flesh, you know, and, and a joke and an elbowing. This is how I've seen in many, many men's meetings and conferences and church gatherings, many places, not here. Praise God. There's a wrong doctrine, number one. Secondly, those who start getting an inclination or a clue that, you know, maybe there's a little more, they refuse it. They say, I'm comfortable with this crowd. What crowd? The carnal crowd. Very comfortable. We can have Bibles all around. We can talk about the Bible and how great God is and cry for three hours together, men holding hands, weeping, our children. Lord, our generation in America, God, we claim our schools. We, we can do all of that. If you're not led by the Spirit of God, you're in bondage to the flesh. But 15 says, For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
what he's doing is again and again saying, if you're born again, this is your true identity. If you have a battle within yourself, this is why it's happening. There will be a liberation. But it's going to come when you receive the whole truth and then get to work in doing what you're supposed to do before God. And God's grace will be with you to help you overcome. And make no mistake about it, if you're not led by the Spirit of God, you don't belong to God. This is talking about not about a person missing the mark, making a decision hastily, impulsively, here and there. It's not talking about somebody who thought they're doing the right thing, they sincerely sought God, but they didn't really give themselves to waiting like they should have this time around. Or they got persuaded and tricked by carnal reasoning. We're talking about a habitual pattern. The Spirit himself bears witness. And even those cases I mentioned, there must be deep contrition. Sorrow, Lord. You see, that's the level of kinship we have with our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. That I want to follow him with every syllable that I hear from his mouth. Nothing less than that. That's the kind of sheep God is looking for. He'll work with all the sheep. But his will is that all the sheep become like that. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Good news. Wonderful news. Again and again. And if children, then heirs. More is coming. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Not just any heir. Joint heirs with Christ. This is, this is beyond hardly human language to capture all of this. Paul is at the, is at the height of his ability to, ability to express what God has given us in Christ. It all connects together. If indeed we suffer with them, that we may also be glorified together. So the context in which he takes Psalm 44 verse 22 and brings it in, we'll see soon, is that, that suffering is part of the Christian experience. We will have reproach, but we have more revelation, much, much more than the people did back then. So we won't dare say, Lord, you've sold us. No, 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 no. We don't say that. Lord, like they did in Psalm 44. Lord, you sold us for next to nothing. You know, we're sensitive in the spirit. We know we can't be talking like that because it's just not true. They were expressing according to their limited knowledge and in the midst of frustration. And also, the maturity that we are eligible for now, they didn't have. The nation, that is. Certain individuals, they got close to God and they became very mature in the spirit. But the nation didn't get that. In contrast with the church of Jesus today, every member of the church of Christ is called a king and priest, a royalty and priest. That means all of us can be close to him. That's what God is getting at. Till the whole body, Ephesians 4, built up. So we shouldn't shortchange ourselves. But it's very important to understand how the devil works through the flesh and what the nature of the battle is 
how to see what's happening and how we can have definite victory every time if we understand what's happening and we do it God's way, handle it God's way. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So the ultimate point of God's salvation for us, he wants us to share his glory on a secondary level. And I say that because the Bible clearly says, my glory I will not give to another. In other words, we are never going to become equal with God. It's impossible. No one is equal with God. Never will be. It's impossible. That's never our, aspira- our aspiration. That's diabolical. That's what Satan wanted. He got thrown out. He's going to be destroyed. But we will share in his glory because we have his genes. We have his DNA. That's how intimately connected we are with him. The adoption I spoke about in the morning is a term to capture how God incorporates us into his family because we were aliens. But once we're purchased by the blood, we're native sons and daughters. It's powerful. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever we're suffering, the glory that my father has, I've got to believe this. It's true. Whatever I go through, it cannot compare with what he's going to do for me in the days ahead and in eternity future. And it's going to be revealed in us. So it's talking about not just external manifestations of blessings, gifts. It's talking about God's nature within us coming out in full bloom. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits, note this, not for the restitution of the universe and the new world, new earth, new heavens. That's part of the plan. But the essence of it is the revealing of the sons of God. Now, who are the sons of God? Who are the children of God? Only the ones who are led by the Spirit of God. It's a very, very narrow path. The qualification is very, very um, singular. If I'm not led by the Spirit of God, is my if, if the pattern of my life is that I keep giving into the flesh and keep making decisions and coming back saying, sorry, Lord, I'm in a dangerous position. But if, like Abraham, like David, only in this matter they veered off. Very few. After that, you don't hear any of a failure at all. No failure. For the earnest expectation of the creation. Eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly. But because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption 
into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Entire universe gets affected by our obedience or disobedience. And God himself had allowed the fall to affect all of creation, the fall of man. But he will liberate the creation too. For he, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with pain pangs, birth pangs, that is, together until now. God will renew everything. He will bring the new. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Who will groan for God to come down and take care of everything? To see the glory of God. Lord, come and show your power. Lord, take over. Don't let the people blaspheme you, Lord. Rise up, Lord, and come. You think God knows when to come and does he need anybody to encourage him? No. But as children, that's the nature of children who are really loyal to the parents. They will praise and they will shout and they'll make a lot of noise about their parents to get justice. When the parents have been wronged. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Only the people have the first fruits of the Spirit. Also grown within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, redemption of our body. This is saying, God, you will be done. You must be glorified, Lord, through my life. And I will come to take my place in the redemption of the body of Christ. In which body I'm a member with my body. For we were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. Why does one still hope for what he sees? So there's a waiting to hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us or helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings with which cannot be uttered. The qualification here for these verses, we can't just claim these things we have to be in the Spirit walking with God. So I can know the Scriptures and say a lot of stuff and even feel goosebumps and say, wow, God really took over. Sensation doesn't equal revelation. Submission leads to revelation, submission to God's law. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to God's will, to the will of God. He's, he's bringing in a dynamic here, more and more revelation of what's happening behind the scenes that really builds our confidence. Wow, God is so involved and he has so many wonderful ways of working, operating. Ah, oh, it's, it's so, I can really trust God. And the more I get to know God that intimately and trust him, the smaller my mountain becomes because I'm seeing him clearer and clearer through his operations and through his plan and purpose and his revelation. And we know 
how meaningful it is to get to this verse that is so popular. We all of us know it. But look at where it is sandwiched in. In the backdrop of everything we just read. All of this knowledge and revelation is what will give feet to my faith when I try to claim a promise like this. In light of everything that we just heard from the beginning of Romans 8, our eyes have been just looking at the panorama of God's operations and the underlying causes of any struggle and how to overcome, how to identify as a true child of God by being led by the Spirit, how to put the flesh to death and how to be a partaker of His suffering. There's a formation here. If I don't have these things, that verse 28 is, is hanging somewhere on nothing. The best that I can do with it is hope for the best. Not understanding that God has been laying the groundwork for me to fully bank on His mercy and His truth. Everything I need now in the future, which makes me do what? Follow him with the fear of God and faithfully love him. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We just heard about his purpose. Those are the people. I have to be in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit to have any guarantee. And then I can boldly proclaim God is going to fix everything for me. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. The predestination, we've spoken about that many times, explained it. It's not that God had already predetermined who's going to come and who's not, meaning that it doesn't matter what we do. Not saying that he foreknew, he already knew who's going to make what decision. That doesn't mean that he made anyone a robot. He already knew. And the people that he already knew are going to come to the cross. He has a certain path that he's predestined for them. That path leads to justification, sanctification, glorification. The people he foreknew, these are my children, they're going to come to me at a certain point. They're going to surrender all. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. The predestination is the people who surrender to God will become just like Jesus Christ. And that's why he paved the way for us by being the first to rise from the dead. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. In whom he justified, these he also glorified. The two aspects to verse 30. One is future tense, though it's written in the past tense. That is for us who have not entered heaven is what God will do. But there are those already there. 
they're in glory. At the same time, we are said to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places now. That glorification is a present tense. So all of those people are involved in this. The point of this is that there's a path that God has marked out for every believer. And the path will lead to conformation, not confirmation, but conformity to the image of his son. That's the ultimate end of God's salvation. The people who he already knew are going to come to the cross and surrender their lives to him from every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He's put them on the track. We've heard of terms like fast track or track to success. This is God's track or path to glory for all of us. In other words, once we come to the cross, the program starts rolling. God will begin to do everything step by step for us. The only way we can shortchange ourselves from that is through unbelief where we deviate and get off the path. All of this presentation from Apostle Paul by the Spirit of God is to help us understand how great and glorious and concrete, substantial and intricate the plan of God is and how intimately he's acquainted with us in every step of our progress. Why does he reveal this? It gives us confidence, but also to show us the responsibility we have with all that he's given instead of, he doesn't have to reveal all this. He's saying, this is the path. You don't have to get confused. The path of the Christian will involve suffering. But it'll lead to glory if you're faithful to him. And God will always be faithful to you. So long as you stay with him. What then? With all these stuff, what shall we say to these things? Well, the overwhelming confidence is, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. He gave him up to be crucified. He delivered him up for us all. All of these things we just mentioned, we heard, they're going to come to us. Hallelujah. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who dare bring a charge against God's children? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. There's a confidence. I said, we can make mistakes. We can make wrong decisions. We can be duped, thinking that God was speaking when we somehow listen to the devil. Doesn't have to be, but it can happen. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us and he's not with us. He will call us and he may have to chasten us, but we can get back on track and never ever deviate again. That's a person who's being led by the Spirit. Not when they don't listen, but the pattern has been broken and now they're listening to the voice of Jesus and following the Good Shepherd. He knows them and they know him. As we read in Second Timothy 2 in the morning, let everyone, the Lord knows them that are his. They have the sure seal foundation. 
and let everyone in the name of the name of Christ depart from what God hates, iniquity, sin. That's how we keep a tight relationship with God, following Him, the Good Shepherd. If that's the case for us, in spite or despite mistakes, we're on the path now, Lord, no more. No more deviation. Not even one degree, Lord. You're my all in all, Father. I love you, Lord Jesus. Take over completely from head to toe, from inside out, in everything, including my relationships. Whatever you say, Lord, that's what I'm going to do and follow through. That person is being led by the Spirit. They're the children of God. So these verses only apply to those people. It's very important to note that. Not to anyone who calls himself a Christian or a Christian herself and caters to carnality and flesh repeatedly. No, they're in danger. They need to wake up and fear God and say, if I'm not led by the Spirit of God, I'm not a child of His. We just read that earlier. But once we get the fear of God in us and we see what's at stake, all that God's done for us, all the operations He reveals, get excited and say, Father, oh, you love me that much? No more charge? Like the Lord said to the woman caught in adultery, woman, what happened to your accusers? God sent them all home. He said, you're ready to stone her? What about you? Do you have sin? Whoever doesn't have sin, you'd be the first one to stone her. Beginning with the oldest to the youngest, one by one they left. There's that woman caught in adultery. She should have been stoned. But the mercy of God appeared in Jesus. And she had an opportunity to escape eternal stoning by repenting, which she did. Because he said, woman, where are your accusers? Charges were being brought against her. Accusers were standing there to stone and kill her. He sent them home and he asked her. In other words, God comes to us and says, these are the charges. I'm not saying it's not real. You see, he didn't tell them, oh, leave her alone. Because she didn't know what she was doing. She was so young or so deceived or so abused. That's why she did this. He never said that. He said, you guys don't have the right to judge like the way you're judging. I'm going to offer repentance to her life. She took it. He said, no accusers? No, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go. Stop sinning. No more. The one who God will justify is the one who will take his mercy with repentance. Completely side with God and say, my entire life is yours. I'm not just going to make a song and write poetry about it and talk about it. I'm going to actually find out what God demands of me in the scriptures and do it. That's how I become a real child of God, following him. He gives me salvation by his blood, through his grace. But I prove that I belong to him by following the shepherd and not the wolf, not the stranger. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. In other words, he's talking in the context of suffering, a lot of suffering. They lost their possessions. They were being hunted down. Christians didn't have an easy time like today. The majority of people today. They became a Christian for, in most cases, it meant death. It meant death. 
And at the least, it meant being put out, shunned by society, spat upon, ridiculed, loss of possessions, all kinds of stuff. In that context, he's saying, hang in there, keep following God. Don't let the enemy try to condemn you because you are precious in God's sight. You're following him. Nothing's going to happen to you. In other words, physically you can suffer things. God will redeem unless you're worthy on that level to suffer for his name's sake and even die for him. That's an elite level, actually. Not everybody's called to do that. Not everybody can handle that. Not everybody's worthy of that. You see that in the book of Acts. They rejoiced when they came back. After they were beaten up, they came back together. They huddled together. And they rejoiced in God. And they were filled with the Spirit. And they said, Lord, we're so happy that we're counted worthy to suffer for your name's sake. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. He's so high. He's our defender. Who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or what shall separate us? Shall tribulation, intense trial, or distress, or persecution. These descriptors here translate into severe pain on every level. And he's telling them, can you imagine that? Coming to a people who are suffering so much. I had someone say to me recently, a pastor for many, many years, in the conversation, I mentioned about how the fear of God, the genuine fear of God from the Bible, when a person really gets that, just like the scriptures say, they find life and their life changes. And I said, even people who are going through severe affliction, such as in the case of people who have children that are in severe mental affliction and torment. And the reply was, I don't think they're going to buy that. This is a seasoned pastor, quote-unquote, many, many years, church planter. He said to me, they're just trying to survive. I don't think they don't, they don't even have time or ability to understand this. I said, I know people who understand and their lives are changed in the midst of the persecution and the affliction, the distress. I said, because the Spirit of God revealed the absolute need for that, for their relationship and fellowship with God. And they're suffering, but they're growing in the Spirit. And after that, he couldn't say anything. Too often, we think that the Word of God needs to be watered down and manipulated or certain things just don't apply. And we can't give this now. Yes, there are times in which God's wisdom would say, not now, not this. But we can't categorically say, for this group of people, don't tell them about the fear of God. Period. Why? Because they're suffering so much and they just want to hear love. Well, this is love. To show that. We love God. 
who loved us first. And in doing that, God is able to move in and do miracles. Because that takes faith. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Intense pain. These are our brothers and sisters, including the Apostle Paul. They're in heaven right now. They, they've passed the test. The group that belongs to this who are doing everything from before verse 35 that God says to do. Here's the use of that very verse from Psalm 44. We read verse 22. Notice how it's brought here. Notice the context from which we read it and how Paul brought it out here and how certain terms we don't use because we have more revelation. Nonetheless, we see in a clear revelation here exactly to what kind of people this applies. You see, you don't have the Old Testament fully. You have them saying that we haven't dealt false in all those things. But still, they had a history. We don't have to have such a history as believers. And we won't venture into that territory and say, Lord, you sold us for next to nothing. You sold us. No, 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 no. There's a mixture there. But here, clearly revealed. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Who? The people who really are following God. That's why you can have the next verse also. Big change, big difference from where this was taken. Yet, it was not mistaken. It's the Spirit of God who drew that out. It's amazing when you read the Bible, the New Testament, the kind of verses that come out, where it's taken from, and how the Lord reveals much deeper then we go back and read that, and we have both sides now. Not only the immediate context, but also God's revelation of what that actually means for you and me as a believer. That's why it's important to read every single word in the Scripture, Old and New Testament. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present. Can you see Christians, beloved family of God, in huge stadiums where they're rallying? And it it can be any kind of rally, but it's, it's Christian. And then somebody gets up in an emotional way, in an eloquent way, with an a, 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 a exquisite kind of delivery, with just the right punch and the right pathos they start reading yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and hundreds of thousands of people cheering and raising their fists in the air shouting hallelujah and amen then he goes on for I am persuaded that neither death nor life Start clapping. Nor angels, nor principalities, principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is Christ Jesus our Lord. The danger of picking out verses and promises 
becoming very emotional over them, crying and shouting and stamping the feet and raising the fist, amen, and high-fying everybody. There's a goosebump feeling that is not only immature, it's very wrong for a lot of people because they're not the sons of God, according to the very context in the same chapter, because they live after the flesh. And you know what? When the group split up, should anyone come up with, what are you struggling with? That's when you see who they're really following. Sobering. But praise be to God. We know exactly how to be counted in these closing verses of Romans 8, in addition to the rest of them, beginning with verse 1. Victory in Jesus' name. Supreme confidence. Nothing's going to separate me from my God because I am a faithful sheep. He's talking to people who are in intense pain and persecution and distress. They're being hunted like wild animals. Many of them were thrown into the Colosseums with the lions and the bears. That's the kind of people he's talking to. Somebody says, well, I don't have that happening now. I can't find a lion and bear and prove myself and get my badge. Think I can qualify here? Of course. But the conditions don't change. I have to be like the man who sold everything to gain the pearl of great price and that treasure hidden in the field. I have to say, Lord, you are my everything. Everything you say is what I will do. And then follow through. Those are the people God is promising these promises to. And if we're not in that position and we're continually serving the flesh, we better repent right away. And the glorious news is the Father will instantly forgive the person who genuinely repents. And they can be included in this category of people who will never, ever be able to be separated by anything in the universe from God's love, from God himself. I want that more than anything. I hope you do too. And that we will covenant every time we have a meeting, really put our heart into what God is saying. Say, Father, I renew my covenant. Only do what you say. I love you and I fear you. You're my everything. I don't care what I lose or what pain comes my way. I will not only not deny you with my mouth, I will not deny you by my actions, my choices, my decisions, my lifestyle. Those are the people that I want to be with, Lord. Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints go marching in. Shall we pray?